It's good to be back from vacation. Regina and I had a wonderful time. We originally, people said, I thought you were only going away for about 10 days and then we're going to come back. We were actually originally going to do that. We headed out to Ohio and we had a great time in the Cleveland area with our son and daughter-in-law, Todd and Hope. And then I was talking to David on the phone and he said, you know, because I was telling him how well our dog, we own a boxer and she traveled incredibly well in the car. And he said, why don't you just continue on and drive out to North Dakota and see your family? So I called my brother and sister. They live across the street from each other and asked if that would work for us to come out. And they agreed to have us come and stay with them. And so we took about two more days of driving and went out to the Dakotas. I was able to get back to my little hometown of Winemere. You've heard me talk about it. If anybody followed any of the stuff on Facebook, you know that my little hometown is as rural as I've told you. There's very, very little left in the town as far as the downtown area, but I was able to take some pictures of some buildings that they're going to be tearing down that were important buildings. The bank, the grocery store, the um, post office are all being removed for some new apartment buildings going in. I was able to get back to my childhood home. I was at a, people say, oh, well, you've been gone for so long, do people remember you? Well, when your father was a pastor for 10 years in a town, and it's a town in North Dakota, guess what? You get remembered. So I'm at the one cafe in town, Anderson's Cafe, that I used to go to when I was growing up, and I was in there talking to some people, and then later somebody came over and said, are you the Cushing son? I said, yes. They said, which one? I said, Stan. He said, I'm Scott Link. We now live in your old house. Would you like to come see it? So I was able to go to my childhood home and have a tour. They've done beautiful work and fixed it up even better. Like we didn't have a finished basement. They've done a beautiful basement. But what was most special to me is my mom was an amazing gardener. Nothing mattered to her as much as a garden. She used to say, come visit me on the outside of my house in the summer, not indoors, because when you'd look at her gardens, you'd say, wow, this woman has everything together. She would just say, just don't come in because, you know, we're not taking care of the inside until the winter. And that's how my mom always treated it. The woman who lives there, she and her husband, she is an amazing gardener, and the gardens were gorgeous. And she not only takes care of the gardens in the house, but right across the street is a cool little park. It's built like a castle, and it's got a stone wall around it. It takes a whole city block. It's called the Rock Garden. She does all the gardens in the Rock Garden. And I was able to say to her, you know, my mom is smiling down from heaven. She could not be happier than to have you here. So that was just one of the many wonderful things. Got back with some friends and, and family, and it's also good to be here. I noticed when I was away, I watched the worship services, and I noticed that David is a little bit more creative than I am, to put it mildly. And so I don't have a beach chair or a lay around my neck, and I'm not going to be sitting up here inviting everybody to beach night. And I'm also not going to make a Sunday with a hot dog on it. I did wonder who ate that. That was kind of my question, or did it get thrown away? But it made me realize I needed to, at least my first wake, make sure I did something creative. So I brought in one of my favorites, which is collecting records. I've collected records since I was a kid. I think I was 12 years old when I bought my first record, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, in case you're wondering, was my first album I ever bought. One of the things that if anybody listens to records, now I know they become popular again. In fact, I was talking to my nephew, who's... He and I love to listen and go to record stores. We went to one yesterday, and we're talking about his daughter, who she actually 
likes records now too. They become popular again. Isn't it funny? The more things change, the more the things are the same. Now, do we have any record collectors in here? People who like to play vinyl records? Okay, we see a couple hands. Yep, somebody back over here. Well, one of the things that happens if you go back and listen to records, something that doesn't really happen with a digital download, even though those of us who listen to vinyl are proud of the fact that it now outsells other mediums. It has now become the most popular again. But one of the things that happens is you can listen to a record. You may not notice it when you put the record on, but all of a sudden it gets to a place and it just keeps repeating. It's called getting stuck in the groove. And it means that something has gotten in there. As things would have it, yesterday before um, the service, I was listening to a record and the exact same thing happened and I had to fix it the way I'm going to tell you. There's a guy in New Bedford who owns a record store and he, I've gone and purchased albums from him a number of times. He also has a really expensive record cleaner. Now that's one of the fascinating things that's changed from when I was a child. I don't remember anybody investing in record cleaners. You can pay $4,000 for a special record cleaner from Germany. Trust me, the Cushings do not have one of those. However, this guy in New Bedford, he has a nice cleaner because he can clean records when he's selling them. And because I've gotten to know him, he said, hey, if you ever have a record that needs to be cleaned, you can bring it to me. So I have done that from time to time. He doesn't charge me anything. And one day I had an album that was stuck in the groove. I took it to him. He looked at it and goes, oh no, this you do the old fashioned way. And he took his fingernail and he just plucked the little thing right out of the groove. So now, like yesterday, when I had the problem, I didn't feel bad doing that, you know? Sometimes something just gets stuck and you've got to pull it out. Now, why do I say that? Because life can be like a vinyl record. We can get stuck in the groove. Sometimes when you're stuck in the groove with a record, like there's sometimes I will have one on and Regina will come in the living room and she goes, that record's stuck, but it's sort of a quiet passage maybe in a classical piece of music and I don't notice it. I just think that that's how the music is going, but somebody else can make the observation and say that thing is stuck. Other times it's more obvious. When we get stuck in the groove, it's kind of the same way. Maybe we don't notice it and somebody else does and sometimes it's very obvious and what I mean by getting stuck in the groove, we may be the kind of person that gets to a certain point and we just get angry. And then we find ourselves the next time we just get angry again. Or maybe we're the kind of person that we find, you know, we live a pretty good life, but, you know, there's times when things happen I just say things about somebody else that I shouldn't say. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's just negative critical thinking and statements that we say to someone else. And in so doing, we aren't living the life that God wants us to live. We've allowed ourselves to go to that place where we just get stuck and every time the same kind of thing happens, we just go back to that same place and we just get stuck in that groove. Because, you know, starting the record over from the beginning is still going to get stuck in that same place. And that's kind of what happens in our lives. We deal with something and finally the anger is gone and now we find ourselves in the next situation and it happens again. The reason I say that and compare that to our lives is because today we are looking at the Sixth Commandment. We're going through the Ten Commandments and showing how they have to do with our everyday life. And the Sixth Commandment is, of course, thou shalt not murder. And here's the problem. If you go and you talk to the average person that has nothing to do with faith and they, you try to talk to them about how are you as a person? They'll usually say, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. A lot of times we as Christians do the same thing. Okay, yeah, my life's pretty good. At least I haven't killed anybody. 
Well, that may be true, but now listen to what Jesus says when Jesus comments on the Sixth Commandment. You would find this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? It's not just I can justify myself and I can say, okay, I haven't killed anybody. Yeah, I got stuck in the groove and I gossip about people and that's okay. Jesus says, no, it's not. Oh, I have never really done the really awful thing. But yeah, every time that something gets a little uncomfortable, I lose my temper. Jesus says, no, it's not okay. Because hatred is a process. It can be generational, but it always starts with a thought. There's always a place where it begins in our life, and the question is, are we willing to look at that place and clean it out so that we can not get stuck in that same groove? Because not only can we get stuck in that same place over and over and it affect our lives, it can also become progressive and lead to even worse behavior. Did you hear the progression that Jesus talked about? can start with angry, then we can go to insulting, And then we can go to downright dismissing people, calling them a good-for-nothing, a fool. Why did Jesus say that? Because I think Jesus understood the same thing that we understand today. We too often justify behavior because we said, at least I haven't done that. And so when the Ten Commandments are given to us, it's not just a matter of looking at the commandments and saying, oh, they are a safeguard so I don't do those really big things, but they're also a reminder of the process of where we live in our lives so that we can have healing at that place. Amen? That's what God wants to do in our lives. That got me thinking of different biblical characters, and the ones that I chose for this morning are King Saul and King David. Two very important people from the Old Testament. Now Saul became the first king for Israel. What an important position. You're the George Washington of your country. You'd think that would be enough, wouldn't you? You'd think that would, that's great. Like you are the founding father of a nation and the first king who's crowned. Then in his kingdom, the Bible tells us there's a little kid. His name is David. He's a shepherd boy. And one day, there's a battle going on, and there's this great big guy. We know him as Goliath. We know the story. And Goliath is out. He's a Philistine, and he's screaming out at the, at the Israelites and saying, if any one of you can take me down, we won't even fight a battle. You win. However, if I can kill your soldier, you all are going to be the slaves of the Philistines. And the guy's nine feet tall and in armor. He's a Shaquille O'Neal of, of King David's empire. And he's literally screaming down at these people. And little David, boy, comes along and has three stones. I'm fond of saying he didn't need three, only needed one. Takes the first stone, tucks it through the air, hits the guy in the temple, and down comes Goliath. Now there's an interesting thing that's happened in this kingdom. All of a sudden, this young boy becomes kind of a folk hero. Now there's other things about this little David. Also, he plays a harp. He gets to know the king, and so when King Saul gets upset, he can't go to Amazon Prime or to one of the modern, you know, 
stations that we all turn into to listen to nice and peaceful, calming music. He can't go to K-Love and turn it on in his car radio. Instead, he invites David to come in, and David plays nice, soft harp music. And King Saul discovers when he's having a bad day and his spirit is troubled that the music of this young boy just soothes him. And through that, it seems that David becomes a family friend. In fact, this little shepherd boy, now playing the harp, becomes a good friend to King Saul's son, Jonathan, and they become best friends. And eventually, as he starts to grow up, he enters the army and he becomes a general in the army. So now David, this little kid, is now an adult and he's doing well. And King Saul should be feeling good about this because now this family friend, this young person who's serving him faithfully, serving God, is doing really amazing things. However, there's a problem. King Saul starts to get jealous. Hear that? It starts with a thought, folk. It starts with something in his mind that he starts thinking about this kid, and now Saul is stuck in the groove. Eventually, that, that jealousy and, and that negative thinking towards this young boy, this now general in his army, turns into a place in which Saul, as a king, wants to get rid of young David. And what I want us to think about is, do I just justify my life because I say, well, at least I haven't murdered somebody? Is that the best my spiritual life can do for me? Do I just go through life and say, well, I haven't committed the great big huge things that the Bible warns against? Or am I willing every day to take a look at where I live and how I live my life and what God has to say about improving right where I am? Amen? I'm going to say that again. Is it about not just doing the big things or God doing the work right where I live? Amen? That's what we're asked to look at. So let's look at King Saul. It began with him in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to look at verses 7 and 8 and then verse 17 with jealousy and manipulation. Jealousy and manipulation. You see, Saul is king and David serving him. And David has gone out to war and has been successful and one day, David comes back into the city, and as he's coming back into the city, people start shouting and singing. And they start singing these words. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was angry as this saying displeased him. Hear what happened? He's a king. Come on, guy. <laughs> You're the man. Like, everybody has to come to you, and you should be happy being king. But instead of being happy being king and satisfied with the role in which God has put him in, now all of a sudden he sees this person, and he starts getting jealous, and he starts getting angry at this guy because of the fact that he's now a folk hero. Then Saul says to David, and here comes the manipulation, here is my eldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now, on the surface, it looks like he's doing something okay in the ancient world. He's the king. This is his leading general. He makes a decision. The guy's single. It's time for you to get married. I'll give you my eldest daughter in marriage. And in the ancient world, in the times when they did arrange marriages and when kings had power and things like that, that in and of itself 
was normal. But notice why he does it. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. You see, being my general and marrying my daughter came with strings attached. You're now my top general. I get to now send you to whatever battle I want and put you where I want to put you. And so what does he end up doing? As you keep reading further, he puts him in the front lines of a battle, a dangerous battle, believing full well that David's going to get killed in that battle. So it starts with looking as if he's just having some anger and some jealousy, but now he's manipulating people. That's what's the problem with getting stuck in the groove. When we go to those negative things, we start treating people in ways we shouldn't be treating them. We start seeing things as objectives to get our way. That's what Jesus warned. Jealousy and angry get us stuck on the wrong path of life. And that's why they need to be checked. That's why God wants us to look at how we receive the information we receive about things that may bother us. Do we get all upset or are we able to see God in control and live in our lane and do what God calls us to do and be okay with somebody else doing better or someone else doing something else and realize we don't have to compare ourselves to anyone else. We don't even have to worry about what other people are doing. God's call in our lives is for us to live our best lives. I think we sang about that earlier, right in the corner where you are. Don't have to do some great big huge deed. Go look at those words again. Just brighten the corner where you are. Just learn to live in our lane and where we live. One of the great heroes of, of America is Abraham Lincoln. We know him Honest Abe. That's his nickname. Sometimes we just talk about him as Honest Abe or Abe Lincoln. We fail to remember why he got that name. The reason he was called Honest Abe is because a newspaper editorial one time said, this guy is so honest about the positions that other people hold that he doesn't want to say anything bad about anybody. And he refuses to misrepresent other people. In fact, he's so honest that he's been known to convince people of opinions he doesn't have because he accurately defends those positions and explains them even better than people are themselves. He's honest Abe. You see, Abraham Lincoln learned that by being honest and truthful rather than being by jealous and manipulative, he lived a better life. It also gave him moral integrity and moral authority when he spoke about things that people knew that he was honest and true in what he stood for. It's also interesting, something else we know about Abraham Lincoln. He suffered from depression. How much different would his life have been if instead of learning to live his life in integrity and honesty, he had lived it with manipulation and jealousy? He wouldn't have been the great president of our country, would he? See, that's what we're asking ourselves this morning. As we look at something like the Sixth Commandment that reminds us what happens when unchecked anger and jealousy and, and, and negative behavior just goes to the ultimate end and it ends in murder, do we realize that as we look at it in our own lives, we don't just dismiss it and say, I don't go there, but where do I live? Do I become jealous? Do I become manipulative? Do I look at other people and wish I had what they had in such of an unhealthy manner that it negatively affects my life? Because the second thing that happens to Saul is he goes into crazy thinking. 
having gotten jealous of this guy, having seen this person that he should be thankful that he's got this great general, this young man who's a family friend. In fact, not only now is he a family friend, he's his son-in-law. Not only should he be thankful for him, he should be appreciative of what this person is doing because David is faithfully serving him. But instead, Saul goes into his head. And we know what our heads are. They're a dangerous neighborhood. Left into our own devices, we can justify anything. So now finally Saul speaks. And we hear what has gone on in his head. And in 1 Samuel 19 verse 1, we're told that Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son. Get the context. You're talking to your son whose best friend is David. Got it? You're talking about your son-in-law here. But he's so caught up in his own thinking that he just assumes everybody else is thinking the way he does. That's a problem with crazy thinking. People start thinking stuff and they start just assuming everybody else believes the same thing they do. And when the words finally come out, people go, are you kidding? You really think that? Have we ever done that with anybody? Ever seen somebody go, I cannot believe that that's what they're thinking. Think of how many times they say that about us. Saul says to his son Jonathan and to his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. He was so stuck into this dangerous neighborhood that he couldn't even see what had happened. He's being completely blinded by his anger and his rage and his manipulation. Getting stuck in the groove, folks, is a dangerous thing in our life. If we don't see it as dangerous, other people do. And we see it in others. And that's why it's so important to learn to be able to take the place in the inventory of where we live and get ourselves checked there. And if we find ourselves that we're starting to think that other people are talking about us and other people are thinking about us, there aren't. First of all, they're too busy thinking about themselves. I like to say that to high school students all the time. You walk into the room and you think everybody's talking about you. No, they're thinking about themselves. Who was a psychologist one day who said, the problem with your life is not how much people think about you, it's how much people don't think about you. That's the truth. And yet we will get stuck in that crazy thinking. Herman Melville wrote the great book Moby Dick. And in Moby Dick you are introduced to a whale and to Captain Ahab. The problem is, the whale is just being a whale. Now, we see them down in Manomet. They're just being whales. Even if they land on a boat, they're just being themselves. They're not, they're not trying to attack a boat. They're just out there playing around and being whales. But Captain Ahab is absolutely monolith obsessed with that whale. And all he wants to do is kill the whale. And you know what happens in the story? Ahab dies, and the whale just swims away. That's what happens with crazy thinking. We get ourselves or people get themselves into this place where they're stuck and they're somehow thinking that what they're thinking is okay and normal and justified, and it's not. And here's the difference. Saul is in this negative, angry place that he shouldn't be. It dictates his life. It determines his legacy. It means that we don't remember him as this amazing first king, but rather a more tragic story, almost a Shakespearean tragedy. And young David doesn't seem to care. He just keeps being David. He just goes about his own business. Because David has a sense in his life that justice belongs to God and he doesn't have to avenge every wrong. Hear the difference? Saul thinks that what he thinks is the God-given truth 
David thinks, I just need to live my life and be the best life I can and brighten the corner where I am and do what I can to make the world a better place. And therefore, when there are opportunities that people come to David and they say, you know, Saul's out to get you. David takes care of himself. He doesn't just walk in and and let the, the king kill him, but he doesn't seek revenge either. In fact, when people try to get him to say something negative about the king, he says, who am I to speak ill of the Lord's anointed? God's seen sovereign to put him on the throne. That's God's business, not my business. David seems to understand justice. He seems to understand the truth that God, in the end, will right the wrongs. And if we're okay just living our lives and not feeling like we have to go to every fight that's out there, amen? I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the last service. Thanksgiving is a long way away. But you know what happens too often at Thanksgiving? Political fights start coming up and people start thinking they have to correct everybody else's thinking about something and they all fight and they argue and they all leave for another year until they forget about it and they do it all again the next year. This year, when that argument comes up, just say, isn't the turkey lovely this year? That's the best tasting stuffing I've ever had. Because we do not have to meet justice everywhere. That's what David has learned. And that's why he's able to live the life that he's able to live. And therefore, in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, verses 3 and 4, and then 16 and 17, we're told that King Saul came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And so Saul went in there to relieve himself. Yes, he had to go to the bathroom. Sorry, folks, it's in the Bible. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Hear what happens? Saul comes into the cave, doesn't know David's there. Remember, this is centuries ago. People don't have cars, so there's not like a BMW and a Mercedes and a Cadillac sitting out front. They're just in the cave. They've just gone in the cave all by themselves. And Saul thinks he's coming into an empty cave. And David and his men are in the back of the cave and go, ooh, this is an interesting situation. There is that guy who's trying to kill you. Here's your chance, David. Here's a sword. Take him down. We're here with you. The king can't do anything about it. Notice what David does. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of the king, Saul's, robe. He snuck up behind him, cut a little bit off of his robe. For whatever reason, Saul never knew he was there, and Saul leaves the cave. Later, David encounters Saul, and he wants to let him know once and for all, Saul, this is your problem, not my problem. Do you know how he does it? He hands a piece of the robe back to Saul. And he goes, here it is. Had I wanted to kill you, go look at your robe with the little piece that's missing. That's because I cut it off. David didn't have to meet revenge. David didn't have to do anything to anybody because he knew God was in control. He knew as long as he was living his best life and doing what he needed to do, that God would take care of everything else. Because here's the truth. Sometimes the way that God meets justice in people's lives, they're not really that happy anyhow. We look at what somebody else is doing, and we look at somebody else, how they're behaving, and God says, just leave it alone. Just live your life and move on. 
We're told in verses 16 and 17. Though when David handed him the piece of the rope, Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Sort of a sad ending to a life, isn't it? At the end of his life, he comes to this conclusion, you know, David was an okay guy. I didn't have to have this anger and and this unchecked jealousy. I didn't have to have lived in my own head. This guy wasn't out to get me. He was just being a general. David did the right thing. And Saul admitted his wrong. Eventually, the story goes on, and a short time after, Saul is killed in battle, and David weeps. Even at that, people try to get David to celebrate. And he goes, there's nothing good about the king dying. And David becomes the next king. Justice sometimes is people getting punished. But often it is self-inflicted. That's why when we can learn in our lives finally to let go and let God, we literally are just staying in our lane and living our lives and we don't become part of the problem. That's what Jesus, remember as we started this whole thing of looking at this commandment, warned us against? Don't justify your life or my life because we haven't killed somebody. Look at where we're living and look at how it's hurting us and hurting others and realize we don't need to be stuck in that groove. Now you may say, hey, I'm doing really good work. All I do is go to this level. We can always improve. It's a lifetime process wherever we are in that process to allow God to heal that area so the next time we get to that place, maybe we're a school teacher. And what we did is we went into school and and we go and we say negative things about other people in the break room and all of a sudden the new year is here and we find ourselves in and we go, wait a second, I remember Pastor Stan's message. I'm not going to do that this time. And we make that change. We get out of the stuck groove. Now, if I ended the message right there, it would just be personal. It would just be about us personally getting stuck. But here's something I want us to understand that the Bible also helps us see. Getting stuck in the groove is generational. Also happens in churches. It happens in companies. It happens in organizations. It happens in governments. It happens in towns. It's when a problem seems to only exist for a person and somebody else comes along and is now doing the same thing and they're saying, I'll never act like that person did, but they find themselves doing the same thing. Kids often will have that happen in their lives where mom and dad maybe did something that they didn't like and all of a sudden one day they're looking in their own life and they're going, oh my goodness, I'm acting the exact same way. Because here's the thing. In his own personal life, David was fine. He didn't resent Saul. He didn't get angry at Saul. But look what happens when he becomes the king. Now David is the king. And one day, David is up on the top of the palace, and he's looking over a wall. Remember, he's married. And there's a good-looking young woman over there. Her name is Bathsheba. And all of a sudden, David thinks, I'm the king. Kings get what they want. And David has an affair with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David not only now has a little problem, he now has a big problem. And so what does David do? He goes right back and does the very 
thing that King Saul did to him. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. David takes the husband of the woman he has an affair with and does the same thing to him that happened to him. Remember what happened to David? Saul sends him to the front of the battle. Thinks he's going to die. David lives. Now David says, oh, I know how to deal with this situation. He sends the husband of the woman he's having an affair with to the front of the battle, hoping he's going to die. So it was, verse 16, well, Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought the battle with Joab, and some of the people and the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. This time it didn't go so well. For David he lived, but Uriah he didn't. And now David, this guy who in his own personal life had learned not to have these kind of things happen, now once he's king and acting in authority, he's doing the very same thing that the last king did. You see, we have to be very careful about getting stuck in the groove because there's so many ways in which it can happen. We go to a company and we see that people gossip about everybody else. We go, I'm not a gossip until all of a sudden one day we find ourselves entering into the same kind of gossip. Or, as I said, families will see that happen where kids will grow up and say, I'm never going to act the way that so-and-so did, only now they're doing the same thing. It's not until Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him the story about a guy with a lamb and, and how he stole the lamb, and David is all outraged, and Nathan looks at him and saying, you, O king, are the man I'm talking about. And finally, David realizes that he himself has to deal with getting stuck in the groove in his life. That is what I believe the Sixth Commandment is about. It's so easy to dismiss one of the Ten Commandments as thou shalt not kill and make it, oh, that's about all those people out there. Jesus doesn't let us do that. He brings it right back to how we live and asks, where is the place that we get stuck? How can I do the evaluation in my life of asking, Lord, what are the things that have been handed down to me or I fall into in situations that I walk into? Or places in which in personal relationships I find myself that every time such and such happens, I find myself getting angry, I find myself saying things I shouldn't say, Lord, help me get healing in that area. If I need to talk to somebody, go talk to somebody. Good places, talk with my pastor. If I need Christian friends to pray with me, I invite Christian friends to come pray with me. If I need to get counseling, I sit down with a counselor and say, you know, here's an area in my life I need to work on. Because God wants healing in our lives and wants us to learn to live the lives the way that we were intended to live. And when our life gets stuck in the groove, we can be sitting like I do in the living room listening to a nice piece of music, not realizing for the last seven minutes I've heard the same thing over and over and over and it may sound okay to me, but to my wife, it's pretty irritating. And we don't want to live our lives that way, do we? Well, we ourselves justify things in our lives and think, well, it's okay, because at least I haven't killed anybody. And others are looking and saying, whoa, I just wish you'd deal with that area in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts. Help us to hear where you speak to us. Not to where others live or how someone else does something. But help us look at ourselves. And as we look at these Ten Commandments, 
take an honest evaluation of our own lives. We pray for healing from the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray for a process to help us to grow and become all that you would have us be. We thank you for the examples of Saul and David, these imperfect people in the scriptures who remind us that the Bible's not full of a bunch of perfect people who give us an example that we could never live up to, but are real human beings who make the same tragic mistakes that we do and remind us of the importance of having that change where we need to change. Help us see the sixth commandment the way that Jesus wanted us to see it. Not just about murder, but about jealousy, about gossip, about hatred, about depersonalizing others, about thinking that we have to go to every argument and fight that's out there rather than allowing you to be the one who takes care of the justice in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.